theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by our dear friends, Liz and Dr. Michael Michelle, here in Muncie, New York, in the loving memory and Le'elu Nishmas of Rebetzin Sarah Michelle, Sarah Bas Rabbi Chiel Mechel, in honor of the Yartzeit on the 23rd day of Cheshvan, today Chav Gimel Cheshvan, Tehei Nishmas Atzru Rebetzer HaChayim, she was an extraordinary pillar of the community, dedicated to her family, to her community, to the Jewish people, a source of education and inspiration, and uh, we're honored to dedicate this shir in her loving memory and thank you to her special and incredible family. Yehei Zichra Baruch. They say that there was a new rabbi, and he was in the middle of giving a sermon. And in the middle, he beaconed, he, he summoned the gabai, the assistant of the synagogue, to come over to him, to approach him. Middle of the sermon, this was quite surprising. The gabai comes over and the rabbi says, there, Yankel is sitting in the third row and he's fast asleep. Go wake him up. And the gabai replied and he says, dear rabbi, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. It's a uh, well-known phenomenon that uh, Jews fall asleep during sermons. Not only during sermons, they also fall asleep during lectures of professors, and they also fall asleep during uh, board meetings. They also sometimes fall asleep at the table. But it's an old tradition, for some maybe a sacred tradition, when the rabbi gets up to speak, they fall asleep. This is an old tradition. There's an old anecdote I once heard from a rabbi in South Africa. He said, you know, in South Africa, everybody comes Friday night to shul. So he says, there was this rabbi, he's already a rabbi for 25 years, and every Friday night he gives a sermon, and this guy in the front, Berkowitz, falls asleep and starts snoring. Okay, it was like a known tradition. The rabbi starts speaking, Berkowitz starts snoring. One week, the rabbi is walking up to the pulpit. He's not even there yet. But Berkowitz is already snoring. The rabbi couldn't take it anymore. He gives a scream, he says, Berkowitz, Vashlovster, why are you sleeping? Mela, every week you fall asleep after I start talking. I open my mouth and you feel I'm monotonous, I got nothing to say, I'm irrelevant, I'm boring. But this week I didn't even begin yet. I'm walking up towards the pulpit and you're already snoring. And Berkowitz looks up and says, Rabbi, I trust you. But as we will see, this phenomenon is not new at all. And I do have to say that since the coronavirus, this experience also has seriously declined this tradition, for obvious reasons. And uh, <laughs> on Zoom, if you don't like the speech, right, you could just tune out, it's fine. When you're, when you're present, sometimes you can't walk out, so you have to fall asleep. You perhaps know the story about Winston Churchill, talking about Britain, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and his impact. You remember the story about Sir Winston Churchill. He's considered one of the saviors of the free world, a man who stood alone in Europe, stood alone against Adolf Hitler, Yamach Shemai, before America was even involved in the war. And, uh, you know, as savior of the free world, he often felt himself entitled to grab a little, uh, how do we say it, a little schluff, a little nap in the House of Commons. When a fellow parliament member approached him and said, must you fall asleep when I am speaking? Churchill answered, no. I mustn't not, it's purely voluntary. But I want to tell you a story. 
And this is a story that comes from Medrash, Medrash Rabbah this week. And it's a fascinating story and a very intriguing story, but also a difficult story to understand. Says the Medrash, Medrash Rabbah Bereshis, Parsha Nunches Gimel, Medrash Rabbah Bereshis, section 58. I quote and I'll translate. Rabbi Kiva Rabbi Kiva was once sitting and lecturing, and his students were falling asleep. He wanted to wake them up. Omar, he said to them, What caused Esther, or what occasioned Esther to rule over 127 provinces? The answer is, is because Esther was a descendant of Sarah. And Sarah lived till 127. Therefore, let Esther come and rule over 127 provinces. And that's how Rabbi Akiva woke up the crowd that was sleeping during his shear, during his lecture. What a fascinating medrash. Rabbi Akiva is trying to wake them up. And how does he wake them up? He asks, why Esther, the queen of Ahasuerus, the monarch of the great Persian Empire during the time of Purim, decides to reign over 127 provinces? It's because she's a granddaughter of Sarah, and Sarah lives 127 years, as the Torah says in this week's portion, Barashas Chaya Sarah, so therefore her descendant reigns over 127 provinces, just like her grandmother lived for 127 years. And this is how Rabbi Akiva gets the audience to wake up. Now it's a strange story, and it brings up quite a few questions. Number one, what exactly is the connection between Sarah's lifespan and Esther? becoming a queen over 127 provinces. It seems completely coincidental. I mean, it's an interesting coincidence, 127 and 127. In the Megillah, we have Esther ruling over 127 provinces with her husband, Achashverosh, and Sarah happens to live 127 years. But the connection seems very uh, superficial at first glance. Number two, Esther didn't really rule over 127 provinces, nor did she choose to rule over these provinces. Rabbi Akiva says, Marasa Esther Limlich, as though this was her vocation. You know, she went to a coach, a life coach, and the life coach uh, advised her to go rule over 127 provinces. That's not exactly what happened. She was taken. She was taken to King Achashverosh, who was enthralled by her beauty and her, her grace and her demeanor, and he chose her as his queen. What did Rabbi Akiva mean when he says that Esther decided or chose to rule over 127 provinces. Number three, Sarah did not choose the time of her death at the age of 27, nor does any other person, nor does any person choose the time of their passing. The length of our life is God's choice. It's not ours. What is the meaning of the idea that in the merit of her living 127 years, her granddaughter merited to be such a powerful queen? This was not Sarah's choice. This was God's choice. Which brings us to the next question, the fourth question. Esther is not the only granddaughter of Sarah. If I'm not mistaken, every single Jewish woman who ever lived is a descendant of Sarah. Including, including every woman who's joining us here today. Including any Jewish woman around the world. Including any Jewish woman who lived is the progeny, the seed of Avraham and Sarah. According to the Medrash, then, let every granddaughter of Sarah reign over 127 provinces. Why only Esther? Perhaps the most important question is, 
Why did Rabbi Akiva choose this particular insight as a way of waking up his sleepy crowd? I mean, he could have chosen, I assume, endless ideas and anecdotes, or numerous ideas and anecdotes. Why did he think that this statement would wake them? If I'm speaking to a crowd and I see people falling asleep, which happened more than once, I would usually think something comical, maybe entertaining, uh, a good joke, might help wake them up. But Rabbi Akiva chose this question to wake them up. Now, it doesn't seem it's so dramatic or, or exhilarating or a humorous statement to awake, to wake up a Jewish audience asleep during a rabbi's sermon. We know that to get Jews up when they're sleeping during a speech is a unique skill. It's not so simple. And most rabbis have not mastered this skill. Yet Rabbi Akiva chose this insight and he felt this will do it. The last question, the last question that I just shared, has a very interesting answer that was given by the Chidush Harim, the first Rebbe of Ger. The Chidush Harim was a Jew named Rabbi Itzchak Alter. Rabbi Itzchak Meir Alter, he was born in 1799, he passed away in 1866. And he answers this question in a rather creative way. He says, Rabbi Akiva gently reprimanded his students for sleeping through the class. Why? If Esther reigned over 127 provinces in the large Persian Empire, corresponding to Sarah's 127 years, it means that for each year of Sarah's life, Esther was granted queenship over an entire province or country. 127 years gave her the ability or the privilege or the power or the merit to rule over 127 provinces. So it's one province per year. Now a province, the expression of the Megillah is, Meya ve'eshem, Medina. Medina really is like a country or, or a large province. Says the Chidush Arim, the Chidush Arim is the first Gary Rebbe, Rabbi Meir Alter. He says, okay, so let's now think about this. For each month of her life, if for each year Esther was given a province or a country, for each month of Sarah's life, Esther was given the gift of queenship over an entire city. Because a Medina contains at least 12 cities. So for each month, for each month of Sarah's life, if for each year she was given a whole province, a whole Medina, so for each month she was given an entire city. It follows then that for each week of Sarah's life, Esther was rewarded with a town because a city has at least four towns. So for for each month she was given, Esther was given a city. So for each week she was given a town. This would mean that for each day of Sarah's life, she was rewarded with a neighborhood or with a section of the town. And if you break it down even further, you'll find that for every second of Sarah's life, Esther was rewarded with an entire block over which she reigned. So Rabbi Akiva, says the Gerer Rebbe, was trying to teach his students to value the significance of every single moment of life. Sarah received immense awards for each and every moment of her life because she devoted all of her time and all of her energy to living an honest, a meaningful, a good, a productive, a virtuous life. This was the message of Rabbi Akiva. In his pedagogical uniqueness, he wanted to convey to the students who were sleeping, don't squander time. Time is what we call an Aveda Shein It's something that you cannot gain back 
value, value every moment of life. A resource like time is something that you do not want to waste, you do not want to squander. Each moment is pregnant with great, great potential. Somebody once said, imagine there is a uh, a bank. Each morning the bank credits your account with $86,400. It carries over no balance from day to day. It allows you to keep no cash balance, and every evening it cancels whatever part of the amount you fail to use during the day. What would you do? You would draw out every single cent, of course. But everybody has such a bank. And the name of this bank account is time. Every morning it credits you with 86,400 seconds. Every night it writes off as lost whatever of this you have failed to invest to good purpose. It carries over no balance. It allows no overdraft. Each day it opens a new account for you. If I fail to use the day's deposits, the loss is mine. There's no going back. There's no drawing against tomorrow. I have to live in the present on today's deposits. And time waits for no one. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is mystery. Today is a gift. As they say, that's why we call it the present. It's a gift. To realize the value of one minute, ask a person who missed a train. To realize the value of one second, ask the person who just avoided an accident. To realize the value of one millisecond, ask the person who won a silver medal in the Olympics. So this, according to the Chidush Harim, was the subtle message Rabbi Akiva was conveying to his students. There's an old anecdote about a man who came to the therapist. He had a very serious problem. How can I help you, asked the therapist. He says, therapist, doctor, please tell me what time is it? Therapist says, it's three o'clock. The patient says, oh no, God help me. Therapist says, what's the matter? The patient says, I've been asking the time all day and everybody gives me a different answer. This is crazy. Life is too chaotic. But there's something deep here. Everybody gives me a different answer when I ask them what time it is. It's interesting, right? Other questions, you expect more or less the same answer. Okay, if you ask who's the President of the United States of America now, you may not get the same answer from different people. But generally, you ask a question, and we hope people will give the same answer. With time, nobody will ever give the same answer, unless you're asking at the same moment two people. That's the uniqueness of time. They tell a story that Aristotle once asked his students, who is the greatest teacher in history who kills all of his students? And the answer was time. Time. There's no teacher like time. No teacher like time. Time teaches us the profoundest truths about life. It also kills all of its students. I heard from my late father, the Lubavitcher Rebbe once told him in 1984. He said to him, in Yiddish he says, the Weltzog, the world says time is money. The world says the time is money. Ichzog, I say time is life. Time is life. This is where Akiva was telling his students. Time is not only money, time is life. Don't sleep through your life. If you're sleeping in Rabbi Akiva's class, you're sleeping through life. Look at Sarah and see what she accomplished in one minute. You have to know when to sleep, where to sleep. And sometimes, some places, you don't fall asleep. Rabbi Akiva is teaching. Rabbi Akiva is giving Torah. If you could sleep through this session, you're sleeping through life itself. There's a time to sleep. We all have to sleep. The Rambam says in Hilchas 
A person should sleep eight hours a night. That's the healthy time for a person to sleep. There's the Pasik the Magan Avram brings, Yashanti Az Yanuachli. I sleep and then I have serenity, I have rest. Oz is Aleph Zion, is one and seven, is eight hours. Okay, so everybody has to figure out what works for them in a way that you relax. And sometimes people are sleep deprived and they can't function the next day. And it adds up. And at some point there's a breakdown, a breakdown of their qualities and skills and abilities. You have to get sleep. That is part of living. That is how God created life. But you have to know where to sleep and when to sleep. When I was a child, the Grushul I grew up in, so Rosh Hashanah, there was a lot, a lot of people and a lot, a lot of pushing by the shofar blowing. And there was a gabai, a Polish shayid, his name was Reb Moshe Pinchas, Hakoyen Katz, Zechroyna Levrocha. And this is a childhood memory. He would always get up before the blowing of the shofar, before the reading of the Torah, and he would give a clap on the bim, and he would try to admonish the crowd nicely to stay put. Everybody should stand in one place. Nobody should push. It should be quiet. It should be organized. It should be elegant. It should look beautiful. And then he always gave a scream. At the end of his short speech, he gave a scream in a real zaftike Polish Yiddish, um is all wissen. You must always know where you stand and before whom you stand. Or in the expression of the Gemara in Brachas, Dalif Know before whom you stand. Rabbi Akiva says, when you're sleeping in this class, when you're sleeping in this class, you're sleeping through life. That's a little elaboration of what the first Gerer Rebbe, the Chidushi Harim, says. It's a creative answer, it's an interesting answer. But I want to now go on a, take it, take it, take a different approach. Take a different angle. Besides, we still have to answer the first four questions. Not just why he chose this insight to wake up his students through it, but rather, what is the insight itself? Not only its implications for the students, but what did Rabbi Akiva even mean, which were the questions we asked earlier. What is more, there are quite a few verses and statements of our sages that highlight the value of time. Why did Rabbi Akiva choose this particular teaching to arouse his students from their slumber? So, briefly, I want to uh, take a different approach or an additional approach. Rabbi Akiva was saying something very profound, very profound. And this is an idea that, uh, this is based on an idea that was shared by the Lubavitcher Rebbe at a Purim Fabrengen, at a Purim gathering, which is of course dedicated to Esther's reign, 1961 and 1970, where he explained the deeper dimension of what Rabbi Akiva was saying. How does Chayisara begin? It begins with the word and the life, the words and the life of Sarah was 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. This is how Chayisara begins. Vayiyu Chayisara, Vayiyu Chayisara, Shnei Chayisara. And we all know the problem, the redundancy of the final words seems strange. It says, and the life of Sarah was a hundred years and seven, 20 years and seven years. Why the need to repeat? These were the years of the life of Sarah. Shnei Chayisara. You already began that the life of Sarah spanned 127 years. This was the life of Sarah. So Rashi presents his famous answer. Kulam Shavim Lataiva. All the years of Sarah's life were equally good. 
they were equal in goodness. If the Torah would have said, and the life of Sarah was 127 years, you would have known that in quantity, the quantity of her life was 127 years. The Torah wants to speak not only about the quantity of her years, but also about the quality of her life. So by describing her entire life as one single entity, these were the years of the life of Sarah. The Torah is trying to tell us that the entire life of Sarah had this cohesive, integrated entity. Kulam shavim letoiva, all her years were equal in their goodness in their good fortune. So it doesn't just say the life of Sarah spanned 100 years and 20 years and 7 years, so we know that she lived 127 years. By the way, there's another question why it has to say years three times. 100 years, 20 years, 7, you could have just said 127 years. That Rashi addresses, it's a different explanation. But then, why does the Torah say, Shnei Chayi Sarah, all of these together make up the years of the life of Sarah to tell you that there was a single thread that pervaded all the years of Sarah. Kulam Shavim Latoiva. They were all combined and integrated by their goodness. And yet, at first glance, this is seemingly untrue. Like every human life, Sarah's life was filled with vicissitudes, with fluctuations from one extreme to the other. Moments of great joy, but moments of deep pain and sorrow. In fact, I would say that her life was more turbulent than at least many other people's lives. She was raised in a home steeped in pagan idolatry, then made a 180-degree turn, partnering with her revolutionary husband to literally change the world. She left her family, her birthplace, her country. Lech Lecha, she and her husband embarked on a new journey, creating a new life and a new reality for herself. She became a mentor and a teacher to thousands. She was abducted twice by powerful kings, who both wanted to violate her. In Egypt, she was kidnapped by the king and came close to be violated. And then later, Avimelech, the Philistine child. But for 90 years, she was yearning for a child and remained infertile for most of her life, causing her deep anguish. She finally brought in a maidservant, Hagar, who had a baby, and relations became very, very difficult. And she felt that she has to expel Hagar and her, her stepson, Yishmael, who she was raising together with Hagar. These are not easy, easy experiences. And then suddenly her life is transformed. She finally gives birth to a baby, Yitzchak. But then he's almost slaughtered, after which she passes away. Sarah's life was anything but a continuous, seamless flow of, of good fortune and happiness. Her life saw ups and downs and joy and agony and triumph and defeat and security and vulnerability. How can Rashi quote to the Medrash and say, Kulam shavim l'tayva, all her years were equally good. What is the meaning of this? How can one say this? Of course, what Rashi means is not that her entire life was equal in the sense that they shared similar circumstances that everything just followed a predictable trajectory, and everything was calm and serene, exactly as she imagined it would be. Sarah's life was nothing of this. Her life was characterized by upheavals, by transformation, by radical shifts, as I said, from one extreme to another extreme. What Rashi is telling us is that despite all of her diverse experiences, there was something that permeated her entire life with all of its occurrences. And this was her goodness. The years of Sarah's life were equally good. Kulam shavam l'tayva. What this means is, there was a goodness, a tayva, goodness, that permeated, that penetrated every single day, every single moment, every single experience of her life. She was a good person when she was a princess. 
a royal matriarch sitting on top of the world celebrating her newborn baby with reverence and respect showered upon her from multitudes of leaders and laymen alike, but she was the same good person when she was abducted by Parai, sitting in his palace, vulnerable and unguarded. She was the same good person when she was wealthy, affluent, and she was the same good person when she was an impoverished, wandering woman. Throughout all of it, her goodness shined equally. She never allowed the various turns of her life to deprive her of her focus on being good and on bringing goodness into the world. There was a Jew... I knew him, his name was Reb Mendel Futafas. Reb Mendel Futafas spent almost a decade of his life in Stalin's gulag. He was, uh, he was born in the Soviet Union. His father died before he was, he was born. So he was named by his bris, Menachem Mendel, Ben Menachem Mendel. He was named after his father. I remember when he would get an aliyah. I remember Rosh Hashanah, he would get an aliyah in Shul. They would say, I still remember the Balkaira, his name was Matul Shustam. He said, Harav Menachem Mendel, Harav Menachem Mendel. It was very, as kids, we wanted to know, why does he have the same name like his tati? In some Sephardic communities, you name after somebody who's alive, but in our community, it was very strange. Ashkenazim don't do this. You know why? My wife comes from a Sephardic family. She was named after her grandmother, who Baruch Hashem is still alive, Esther, actually. Her grandmother, father's mother, who was a Sephardic family, from Saloniki, from Greece. But by the Ashkenazim, it's uncommon. And then, you know, I learned that Reb Mendel's father passed away before he was born. His mother was pregnant, so the Brissi was named after his father. He did not have an easy life. He had six children, and five of them died during his lifetime. He was separated from his family, from his wife and surviving children for 20 years. And he was in the gulag for close to 10 years, in Stalin's gulag. He came out of the Soviet Union in 1964. And I knew him already in later years, in the 70s and in the 80s and the 90s. He passed away in 95. So he related once that one of the ways in which he kept his sanity was he had to constantly engage his mind in the famous idea of the Balshandu. Balshandu said, from every, everything that a person sees or hears is a lesson in your service of Hashem, in your service of God. So he said, I heard, I learned many lessons in Siberia from many unusual teachers. He says, one of our prison, one of the prisoners there claimed to be a tightrope walker. You know, Siberia, the gulag was filled with lots of people, millions of people, and a lot of interesting people, because Stalin exiled, you know, clergy and professors. If you had a mind of your own and you thought and you expressed yourself, you probably ended up in the gulag unless you were shot before that. So a lot of interesting people from all types of, of backgrounds. So he says, this fellow claimed that he was a tightrope walker. Reb Mendel didn't know about this. We as kids went to circuses. We saw tightrope walkers. He never heard of such a thing. He couldn't imagine, first of all, how can it happen and why a person would waste his time walking on a rope and he might fall on his head and kill himself. He could just walk on the ground like everybody else. He couldn't, he couldn't wrap his brain around this concept of a tightrope walker. When Stalin died... Joseph Stalin Yamach died March 1953 after 30 years of his reign of terror since 1924 when Lenin died. So when Stalin died, the government eased up the pressure on many of the camps, the work camps, the concentration camps. They eased up the pressure. So some of the inmates decided to make a celebration, not for Stalin's death, you could be killed for that, but a celebration, you know, that the pressure was off. And the tightrope walker 
finally found his chance to prove himself and authenticate the skill that he's been talking about. He found a long, thick rope somewhere in the camp in Siberia. He attached it to the side of a building about 10 feet above the ground. He stretched it to another building about 15 yards away, and he attached it there at the same height. And for a long time, he was up on a ladder, pulling, testing, fastening the rope, until everything was finally ready for the great display of talent. A crowd gathers around. Remember, this is in a Siberian camp. The man removes his shoes, and he climbs up the ladder onto the rope. Reb Mendel Futafas, a chassid, a yid, was one of the first to get interested. He was quite interested. And this is what Reb Mendel shit. He said, first, in his words, in Yiddish, he spoke, I'll say it in English. He said, first, the man climbs onto the rope. He took a few steps. He lost his balance and he fell, but he knew how to fall. It was like a cat, like a cat falling. He waited a few seconds. He climbs up again, loses his balance and falls again like a cat. Eventually, he climbs up and he starts walking. And then he starts dancing from one foot to the other foot. He's dancing to the rhythm of all of the onlookers who are applauding him. Then he gets to the end. He turns around, he dances back to where he started, he climbs down, and the crowd is applauding him and sharing him. Such entertainment in Siberia was historic. After shaking everybody's hands, he walks over to Reb Mendel Futafas. And with a satisfied smile, he says, Nu? Rebbe, in Russian he says, Rabbina, what do you think? What are, Rabin, what do you think now? Reb Mendel says, I have to say, I was impressed. But I have to ask you, how do you do it? How could you walk in such a thin rope without falling off? So Reb Mendel says, the man looks at me and he says, I fix my eye on where I'm going. And I never even think about falling. He waited a few seconds for me, for Reb Mendel to digest the answer. And then he said, and do you know what the hardest part is? Remendel says no. He says turning around. Because when you turn around, you lose sight of the goal for a second. It takes a long time to learn how to turn around. Remendel said, this taught me such a powerful lesson in life. I fix my eye on where I'm going and I never even think about falling. But turning around is the hardest. Because that moment, that split moment, your eye is not on your target. Reb Mendel shared this lesson in life, and in many ways it captures Sora's legacy. None of us can choose how long we live. Nor can we always choose the circumstances of the life we need to tackle. Yes, we should always try to enhance our circumstances and enjoy the most delicious, serene, tranquil circumstances with revealed goodness. But not all of the circumstances can we choose. I once heard from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, that towering intellect and Jewish personality who passed away last Shabbos. And I heard from him that in 1968, he was a Cambridge University student He traveled the United States of America for a few months on a Greyhound bus. It's a story that he shared, I think, quite a few times. 
and he visited many Jewish intellectuals and leaders and rabbis and thinkers. And one of his visits was at the office of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. And he came into the Rebbe, he said it was the middle of the night. I think it was around 2 o'clock a.m., if I'm not mistaken, around then. And he came to ask questions. He was a bright student, as is quite obvious today. Brilliant student. And he had lots of questions, lots of questions, philosophical questions, theological questions, spiritual questions, religious questions. And he posed them to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe responded. It was a very long conversation, he said. But then something happened that he did not expect. All the people he visited, he asked the questions and they gave the answers. He says, suddenly, the Rebbe started to ask him questions. He was a young boy, young boy. He was like, I don't know, probably 20 years old. I assume around 20. Yeah, I think exactly, 20 years old, 1921 maybe, very young, a young philosophy student. And the Rebbe started to ask him, how many Jewish students are there in Cambridge University? How involved are they in Judaism? What is their relationship to the Jewish people? What are you doing for the Jewish students in Cambridge? The Rebbe started to ask him all these questions as though he was the Chabad Shliach at Cambridge University, or he was another rabbi, or a Shishiva, or director of some major Jewish organization at Cambridge University, when he was just a philosophy student trying to figure out his life and the truths of existence. So he said, to quote Rabbi Sachs, he says, in a, he said, as a, as a good British gentleman, I started to respond and say, in the situation I find myself in, and he was looking to end the sentence, you know, something like, I can't, I don't have time, whatever. He says, the Rebbe interrupted him mid-sentence and said, a person never finds himself in a situation. A person puts himself in a situation. And when you put yourself in one situation, you can always relocate yourself into another situation. And then he went on with suggesting to young Jonathan Sachs to become a Jewish leader. And ultimately, to become a rabbi's rabbi. This is 1968. Around a quarter of a century later, he became the chief rabbi of Great Britain when he shared the story. Sometimes, it seems that I am put in a situation. I did not choose the situation. I did not choose these circumstances. I would have wanted and dreamt and aspired of other circumstances. But this is where I am. How do I view it? Do I find myself in the situation? Or do I put myself in the situation? The physical circumstances may not change, but my perspective, my vantage point, how I discern it, how I view it, how I judge it, and most importantly, how I define my relationship with it, there lay the major difference between a good life and a cursed life between a life that is filled with goodness and inner joy and purpose and meaning and a life that is filled with suffering and agony. Because there's one thing that I can and I must choose that throughout my entire life story, notwithstanding the challenges, throughout your entire life story, notwithstanding your challenges, you remain good, pure, innocent, dignified, moral. And you remember that you are an ambassador. You were sent on a mission. God sent your soul down here to this world to do something. And this is part of your mission. This must be the unifying theme of my life. I can't always create a life in which my all the circumstances are uniform. What happened yesterday will happen today, will happen tomorrow. 
no matter my conditions, no matter my situations, no matter your conditions and circumstances, your goodness can always glow. Your purity, your idealism, your love, your resilience, your faith, your fortitude, your inner wisdom and your commitment to truth, authenticity, depth, integrity, and MS can always be there. You may be a millionaire owning seven homes and a yacht and a private jet. Or you may be a captain. How do we translate a captain? A struggling worker trying to save your home from foreclosure. You may be in a country that is prosperous and has a decisive trajectory and a clear identity. You may be in a country where there's a lot of confusion and chaos. You may be in a situation where your family seems so healthy and wholesome. Or a situation, God forbid, where that is compromised. But your goodness must never be compromised. Your dignity must never, ever be a question. Like that tightrope walker in Siberia, Sara, like Avram Avinu, had their eyes on their goal. They didn't understand everything about their journey. Part of their journey felt like walking on a tightrope. What does Reb Nachman say? Right, The whole wide world is a very narrow bridge. And if I go this way, if I go to the right, if I go to the left, God forbid I can fall and hurt myself. The main thing is not to be paralyzed by fear, by insecurity, not to allow my traumas to cause me to, to lose the plot, to lose the mission, to get, to take my eyes off the target. Avram and Sarah had a mission. They knew they were following the call of God to bring goodness and light to the world, to be the ambassadors of the Rebbeinu Shalom, ambassadors of the Creator, ambassadors of love, light, hope, healing, wisdom, authenticity, integrity. Sometimes the journey was on comfortable ground, and sometimes it was on a tight rope. But don't take your eyes off, and don't think about falling, because you have a mission. Who gives you a right to think about falling? And even when you have to turn around, those are moments when you could completely lose your balance because you don't have that clear target. You don't see where you're going. You don't see a goal. There seems to be endless chaos. You're turning around. Those are the moments in your mind's eye. Those are the moments when in your mind's eye you must hold on to that powerful, powerful goal. Sarah, the first Jewish woman, passes away. Another Jewish woman appears on the stage of history. Her name is Esther. She would be the last Jewish woman to be recorded in the Tanakh. That is the fascinating contrast about these two women. Sarah is the first Jewish woman to enter into the pages of the Tanakh. And Esther is the last Jewish woman to enter into the pages of the Tanakh. To quote the Gemara Megillah, Yudalot Esther, Sarizman Hanavu, Esther represents the end of the era of prophecy. No more. Will there be a Jewish personality, a man or a woman in the Tanakh? Esther is that final era, the time of Purim. Soon the second Beis Amikdash would be created, would be built. And that era, the era of Tanakh ends. Later we will have the era of the Mishnah, the era of the Gemara, Talmud Yerushalmi, Talmud Bavli, etc. Sarah is the first, Esther is the last. Unlike Sarah, she has not only been abducted by the Persian monarch, she was compelled to marry him. Sarah was also taken to the monarch, to Parai but she got out. Esther did not get out. A beautiful Yiddish Amedala ends up a queen. The queen of the most powerful monarch of the time. An insecure leader. An egomaniac of frightening proportions. A glutton of the highest order. And a paranoid individual. 
Achashverosh. Esther grew up with no parents. The Megillah says that both of them died when she was a child. She was taken from her cousin's home, from Mordechai's home, to the palace of Achashverosh, destined to spend the rest of her life by his side. Her opportunity to surrender to despair was certainly available. But like her great-grandmother, she rose to the occasion. She never forfeited her dignity, her grace, even for a moment. Her, her life was a roller coaster of deep, deep abandonment and pain and tragedy. But her goodness... The Gemara says, Whoever saw Esther was enthralled by her grace. There was a thread of kindness, of chesed, of taiva, that bedecked her. She lived in a halo of light. This remarkable woman would ultimately stand up to Haman and save her people from extinction. She could have surrendered to the spear and melancholy, but she understood she has a shlichus. She was walking a tightrope, but she's on a mission. She's not a victim of circumstances. She is an ambassador that was sent into the palace. Why? She did not know. But her dignity and faith and goodness, she would not give up. And then when the moment of truth came, and suddenly a Hitler arose, a Haman arose, and plotted almost successfully to exterminate every last Jewish man, woman, and child, it was Esther's brilliance, Esther's ingenuity, Esther's wisdom, Esther's charisma, who saved her entire people. From a, from a powerful, powerful holocaust. You see, when we think about that story of Purim, what happened really? Haman plotted to kill out every single Jew. He did not care who you were. If you were a Jew, a man or a woman or a child, you deserved to die. Haman did not care if you voted for Trump or you voted for Biden. If you considered yourself a Republican or a Democrat if you considered yourself a right-winger or a left-winger or a centrist. Haman did not care. If there was Jewish blood flowing in your sinews, you had to be exterminated. Hitler had a good teacher, Haman. Comes Esther into the scene. She instructs the spiritual leader of the time, Mordechai, what to do. She unleashes a mass Jewish renaissance. She gathers all the Jews together. The book of Esther describes that both in the capital Shush and every other province of Jews throughout the 127 provinces, Bechol Ir Ve'ir, Bechol Medina Medina, wherever the news of the decree to exterminate the Jewish people arrived, the Jews assemble, they fast, they recreate their relationship with God and with Taita from a nation that was dispersed geographically and divided ideologically. Esther manages to create a singular renaissance in the entire nation dispersed and divided among 127 provinces and cultures. And despite the fact, it says in Svarim, that Haman, said that any Jew who would renounce completely his Jewishness, Haman would spare him, there was not a single Jew in the entire Persian Empire who did so. How did Esther manage to do this? She was in the palace, a young Jewish girl, whatever her age was, is a few of opinions. She told Mordechai, the leader of the Sanhedrin, I want you to gather all the Jews in Shushan and create a renaissance, and ultimately the news spread. And this happened in every single place where Jews lived throughout the entire Persian Empire. How did Esther do this? This is what she learned from her great-grandmother, Sarah. Sarah taught her that the software of life may be diverse, but the hardware of life is identical. That in every situation, 
We are ambassadors of God capable of reflecting His goodness, His infinity, called upon to do His work and fulfill His purpose in this particular situation. The changes in her life were external. The core of her life, the conviction that she is always in a relationship with Hashem and that she serves as His ambassador in this world, this conviction remained the same throughout all of her travails, all of her journeys. This was the attitude of the first Jewish woman, the founder of the Jewish nation, Sarah, so her granddaughter Esther. The last biblical Jewish woman applies this principle to the entire people. Sarah applies it to her life, and Esther applies it geographically to the world. The differences between Jews is in their software, not in their hardware. As extreme as these distinctions may be, and they are extreme, they relate to our manifestations, not to our core. At our core, we are one because the divine presence dwells in every Jewish soul. There is a sacred goodness within every Jewish heart. So what Esther understood about the 127 years of her life, what Sarah understood about the 127 years of her life, Esther understood about the 127 provinces of Ahasuerus's kingship, monarchy, despite that they were so diverse, and the Jews were so fragmented. Haman himself said, there is a nation, it's scattered. Esther managed to unite them as she managed to unite herself in all aspects of her life. She deduced this from the very hate against her people. Why, did, why would Haman's decree target every Jew identically? Why? Because Haman sensed correctly that the Jewish essence embedded in the soul of every Jew is equally potent in every Jew, man and woman, young and old. There is a goodness that exists, and Haman will not rest until he can Destroy them. Destroy each and every one of them. What Esther does in space is what Sarah does in time. Sarah manages to combine and unify her entire lifespan, 127 years, have a, a, a unity, a core that connects all of the experience. There is a oneness there. It's the oneness of faith. It's the oneness of goodness, of, of a commitment to morality. Every day may be different, but my commitment to morality is the same. So just as Esther rules over 127 provinces, she rules over them, she impacts all of them. She brings them together, which is what a real queen does. This is what a real king and queen does. The Rambam says the melech is the lave, is the heart, where all the blood will come. All the blood will come back to the heart and then be dispatched again in order to oxygenate and bring life and vitality and nutrients to the entire organism. So the Rambam says, the melech is lev kal kal The real leader, what's the role of a leader? What's the role of a president? What's the role of a rabbi, of a teacher, of a mentor, of a parent? What's the role of a king, of a queen, of every form of leadership? The role of the leader is to articulate a vision that unites the people. To take individual people who are fragmented, both in terms of personality and in terms of genetic makeup and in terms of vocation, and bring them together towards a common goal, a common vision, even if there are differences, and the differences remain. It's like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, ultimately creating one larger picture, like a symphony combining so many different musicians, who are ultimately creating a symphony. That's what a real powerful leader does. Articulate something that touches each one of our souls, and which we can all connect to. Sarah had that gift in her own life, 127 years were defined by... By, by a mission, by a story, by a singular story. And what Sarah does in time, Esther does in space. She unites 127 provinces, become united. They're so different, and the Jews are so fragmented, but Esther manages 
to bring out the toiva, the idealism, the goodness in each and every one of them. How did Sarah, how did Esther do this? She did this because Sarah can do this in time. Esther does this in space. 500 more years pass. Rabbi Akiva is the great sage of the second century after the common era. He observed the destruction of the second base Hamikdash, almost the complete annihilation of Jewish life and culture by the hands of the Roman tyranny. Beis Hamikdash was destroyed in 70 after the common era. Rabbi Akiva lived during that era. He's lecturing to his students. Rabbi Akiva is not just giving a lecture to entertain them or even just to teach them. Rabbi Akiva is the one who embodies the very tradition of Judaism. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Kul Rabbi Akiva. The entire oral Torah Shabbat, the oral tradition we have today, comes from Rabbi Akiva. So he's attempting to inspire them, give them information and give them inspiration to be able to cling to their faith, to their heritage, to their soul, to their truest identity, to continue studying Torah and celebrating Yiddishkeit, but they're falling asleep. Their falling asleep may not only mean physically, the Bnei Yisachar says this, it may also mean spiritually. They're uninterested. Why do we fall asleep? We fall asleep because we find the information to be either boring or irrelevant. When something touches you at your core, you don't fall asleep. They're not interested. Maybe they have too much pain or too much distress to remain inspired and joyous. So what happens? They doze off. These students lived in one of the darkest moments of Jewish history. After the destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash, Bar Kochva attempted a final rebellion against Rome, but he was horrifically defeated. Many lives had been taken. The spirit and the morale of the Jewish people was low in Rabbi Akiva, who was often referred to as the eternal optimist in all the stories that we see in the Medrash and the Gemara about him, notices his emotionally weary students. This is not just a physical sleep. This is also a moral and spiritual and emotional sleep. How will the great master Rabbi Akiva wake them up from their slumber? The Medrash is not only ta- telling us a story about Rabbi Akiva getting up, and some people were exhausted and they fell asleep, and Rabbi Akiva said, okay, let me talk to them about Sarah and Esther. There is a deep existential conversation. How will Rabbi Akiva manage to wake up his students? How will he kindle their spark, inspire their heart, ignite their soul, and restore purpose to their shattered circumstances? That's the question in Rabbi Akiva's mind. So Rabbi Akiva reminded his students of two Jewish women who lived a long time ago, Sarah and Esther who made their mark on the world by overcoming difficulties. Sarah lived through a tough life, but through standing strong for 127 years, she passed on 127 countries to her resilient granddaughter, Esther. Rabbi Akiva taught them that even if their software may be asleep, their core, their hardware is not asleep. We say in the Song of Songs, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. That's what the bride sings in the Song of Songs. There's something very profound. I am asleep, but my heart is awake. I may not feel my heart, but my heart is awake. The profound connection between a Jew and his or her inner divinity and goodness may be dormant. It may be invisible. It may be, may be going through a difficult period, but it's always present beneath the surface. It's like a black, dark coal, which seems to have lost its fire, its passion. But if you fan it, the fire will emerge in its full glow and its full heat and warmth. Esther, Esther Hamalka, Rabbi Akiva tells his drowsy, exhausted disciples, managed to create a renaissance 
and a transformation in the hearts and souls of Jews from all stripes and colors dispersed over 127 provinces because Esther learned from Sarah that your inner goodness, your inner spark is never extinguished, even if you feel that you're deep in sleep. That's what we say in the Chadaidi. Arise, arise, your light is coming. Rise up and shine. Awaken, awaken, utter a song because the glory of God is revealed upon you. And in our generation too, when we read the story, it's filled with its own anxieties. People are anxious and people are scared. People are downtrodden and people are distressed and people are overwhelmed. Individually, collectively, there is uncertainty, there is doubt. Some people are very scared. We often feel drowsy, exhausted, depleted, apathetic, indifferent, scared, mad, angry, sad. We love sleeping not only by sermons, <laughs> but also in other situations. Yet, like Esther and like Rabbi Akiva, we too could learn from Sarah to remember that notwithstanding any of the circumstances around you, kulam shavim letoiva, you can always, always, Retain and allow your inner infinite godliness and goodness to emerge. We never find ourselves in situations. We put ourselves in situations. And when you put yourself in one situation, you can put yourself in another situation. That spark in you must never, ever falter. And when you have the courage to look deeper, you will see yourself alive and well. You will see yourself driven and good and idealistic. And if you look even deeper, you will see your entire nation alive and well, awaiting the fire that will wake them up from their sleep and bring to the fore their inner light and their inner glory. Thank you very much and have a beautiful and wonderful week. Let me take some questions. Okay, question number one. Did Sarah start living that way from the time she was born? 127 years was the total amount of her life. So I'm thinking, yes. But how does one do that from the very beginning? It's a great question. And it's a wonderful, wonderful question you're asking. And the answer to this, I'll refer you to an essay that I wrote. And it's on the yeshiva.net in Parshas Vayeri, and maybe also Chayesara. It's titled something that our search for truth is also part of the truth. There's also a, a class I gave on this that was just posted last week. The search of truth is also part of the truth, which means even the early years of Sarah, till she discovered all of this, became part of this goodness. Because every journey in life becomes part of our destination. Even if I failed... Even if I, if, if there was failure in my life and disappoint, disappointments caused by myself or caused by others, they can ultimately be redefined as catalysts, as springboards, as foundations to create a much deeper beginning and a new awareness. So this doesn't mean that she never made mistakes. Our sages tell us that Avram Avinu discovered God at the age of 40 or at the age of 48 or at the age of 3. There are different opinions in the Medrash, probably different stages in his spiritual development. And then we say all of his years were complete, all of his years were wholesome. Because the search for truth is also part of the truth. The fact that I search, I'm looking for something. I may make mistakes. But it's also part of my search. That itself is part of my destination because 
those were the steps that were necessary to bring me to this place, psychologically. Sometimes in our young years, we develop certain survival skills that later prove to be disastrous. But instead of blaming ourselves, we have to look at comp- with compassion at the earlier mistakes because maybe those were the skills you needed then to survive. And now as a mature adult, you can look back and say, I'm safe now and I could let go of those survival skills. I can open myself up more. And when I can do that, I can retroactively redefine all of those journeys as part of my spiritual oneness with my soul and my purpose of creation. Next question. Did I understand correctly that Sarah and Esther are the only women mentioned in the Torah? No, of course not. I don't, I don't know what you, why would you, why would you think Sarah and Esther are the only women mentioned in the Torah? There's a lot of women mentioned in the Torah. Let's not forget Chava, let's not forget Eve, let's not forget Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, and many, many more will be mentioned in the Torah and the Tanakh. Sarah is the first Jew, first Jewish woman in the Tanakh, and Esther is the last Jewish woman in the Tanakh. That's what I meant. Sarah is the first Jewish woman in the Tanakh, and Esther is the last. But of course, in between them, there will be many, many Jewish and non-Jewish women who will be, uh, who will be mentioned. How does one, how does one practically achieve this that you are been explaining, Rabbi Jacobson? What, what do I do every day in order to achieve this? It's a great question. It's a very personal question. What I would say is uh, maybe the best thing or one, one practical method is morning when you wake up. When we wake up, the Jewish tradition is when we're still in bed, we say a little meditation. In English, I thank you. I offer gratitude to the eternal and living King for giving me back my soul with great, with compassion. Your faith in me is great. And that's a time to identify and place your eyes on the target of your day. That's the time you're starting to walk the tightrope. You're getting out of bed. You're taking on a new day. Have your eyes on the target. What's my target? My target is I have an asham, I have a soul. It's a piece of God. I'm an ambassador of God today to bring goodness and light to me, to my home, to my family to my children, to my loved ones, to my community, and to the world. And then in the morning, spend some time praying, meditating, studying, connecting to this, connecting to this core in yourself. This is before emails and textings and whatsapps and watching the news and giving comments about Biden and Trump and the elections and COVID-19, before all of that. Connecting to that inner core. And then, as we take on the day, whatever it brings, hopefully it'll bring only great fortune and good blessings and a lot of money and a lot of success and a lot of health for everybody. But whatever the circumstances are, you are connected to that, to that very, very powerful core. Next question. How do I maximize and use all of my time? How do I deal with laziness and wasting time? <laughs> okay. There is a different, and am I not allowed to relax? Another question. No, listen, there's a difference between relaxing and laziness are not the same thing, right? We have a day called Shabbos, a day of rest. It's not a day of laziness. It's a day of deep productivity. As the Rambam writes, and the Shulchan Aruch writes, Erechayim Reish Lamed Aleph, Rambam Deis, Peir Gimel, Peir Gdalet. A healthy body is part of being a healthy person and part of serving God. So when a person needs downtime in order to be able to take a deep breath, in order to be able to... Uh, collect their thoughts, in order to be able to spend time with people that are dear to you, that's not laziness. That is an essential part of living. 
That is an essential part of, of community, of connecting, of cementing the bonds between people, of, of sharing, of trusting each other. But what you want to make sure is that you don't use your time and just squander it with a sense of emptiness that will make you feel lousy afterwards. We all know sometimes we spend our time maybe talking about people or talking about nothing, about garbage, or talking about emptiness, or just doing empty stuff. And then you, you yourself, you feel empty afterwards. So you really want to uh, try to avoid that. And again, I think a lot of it starts starts with your mornings. You know, when you wake up, how you wake up, create a schedule for yourself, be disciplined about it. You shouldn't be waking up late. You should be waking up on time early and make sure your mornings are spent well because that really creates the momentum for the day. And perhaps different people are different. You know, some people are very, they're more technical, more people are more artistic. For artistic people, it can be harder because, you know, their mind goes all over the place and they love staying up till three o'clock in the morning and they become creative at one o'clock in the morning till then they're dead. So you really have to know who you are and what your nature is. But the common denominator is consistency is important. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote a line, an excellent line. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote, I don't know if I'm quoting it verbatim with his eloquence, but more or less, consistency is the soil upon which creativity grows. I cannot grow a plant in a vacuum. I need the earth. Creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum. Consistency is the soil upon which creativity can grow. Very creative people, very successful people, are also blessed with consistency. They have to work on themselves. They have to work on themselves because they need schedule, they need structure. Again, there's different types of people and some people need different types of structures than other. For what one person is, for one person something is structure, for the other person it's, it's incarceration. But some type of structure and discipline and consistency is very important, which is why the halacha is very much about routine. You know, I wake up in the morning and I daven. There's davening before sunset and there's davening at night. We, we orchestrate our time in a way that it's attuned to the heartbeat and the rhythm of nature. The sun rises and the sun sets and it creates movement in human behavior and human soul because you're part of, you're part of a rhythm. The world is a symphony. You could look outside the window. The world is a symphony and your body is a symphony. And there's that constant movement and you want to make sure to march to the, to the beat. And that's what consistency is. It's recognizing there's something called morning, there's something called evening. That's why we have Zman Kriyashma, the time of Kriyashma, and Zman Tfila, the time of Davening. We have Shachas, we have Minchem, we have, we have all the mitzvahs, Shahazman Grama, that are bound by time for the men who, who need this desperately. And this is all a way of, this is a way of, uh, of grounding, grounding great creative philosophical ideas within daily routine and consistency. And that's what makes it much more real. It becomes internalized. Judaism could have just been about grand theological ideas of the cosmos and the people. Okay, it's beautiful. But ultimately, the power of Yiddishkeit is, you remember the class we did from the Maharal, the consistency. This class will, again, Ezer Hashem, happen next Tuesday, 9.45 a.m. I hope you'll all be here. Share it with your friends. You can also watch a replay on theyeshiva.net and share it with your friends as well. I'm also happy to inform you that next Monday morning, we will once again begin our early morning Jewish spirituality text-based classes. Monday and Thursday morning, 7.30 in the morning. Everybody is welcome. Right here on the yeshiva.net or on Zoom. That's going to begin next Monday morning. Be'ezer Hashem. 7.30 in the morning, we learn a text 
of Chassidus, of Jewish spirituality, Chassidus, Kabbalah, and we're going to explore it. That's Monday and Thursday, and next Tuesday, 9.45, we will, God willing, have another woman's class. In the meantime, have a beautiful, inspired, uplifting, meaningful, and focused week. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.